Have you ever wondered where we came from and where we might be going? Well, this podcast is here to answer those questions, at least in the context of the Game of Thrones living card game. Welcome to Insight and Renown. Okay, welcome back, guys. Welcome back to Insight and Renown. Uh, glad to be doing another episode here. Today, I'm joined once again by Mr. Chris Schoenthal. Hello, everybody. And today, we're going to be talking about combos. Uh, a lot of things about combo in the news today with uh, Hyper Viper, Wonder Woman, and... Uh, is, there, is there a name for the Brienne deck, Chris? I haven't heard of a clever name for the Brienne deck. I just People just keep calling it the Brienne deck, which... Hopefully they'll come up with something better if it ever wins anything. <laughs> well, those three, anyway. Uh, so we thought it might be a good idea to take a look back at uh, first edition and the CCG, see what uh, other combos people had come up with over the years, and see what FFG had done to address them. Um, with that in mind, I'm going to ask you, Chris, and of course, dear leaders, dear leaders, <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to. Are we in North Korea? Apparently, yes, but with multiple uh, dear leaders. Uh, no, okay, let me try that one again. Uh, I'm going to ask you, Chris, and of course you, dear listeners, to pay attention to these combos and think to yourself, what would be the best way of stopping this from being an issue? Ideally, what would be a good thing to have in place before even printing these cards that would have prevented them from causing an issue? So unfortunately, due to the fact that I didn't really play too much competitively in the CCG days, uh, there's not going to be too much from back then in the terms of uh, broken combos that warped the scene. Uh, I did get in touch with uh, Will Lentz of the White Book Podcast, a uh, fellow CCG player who was kind enough to give me a little bit of information from back then, uh, one of the decks that he could remember. But apart from that, we're going to be focusing pretty much exclusively on the first edition of the LCG. Sounds good. I've got a few spicy first edition infinite combos, so let's uh, dive right in. Very much looking forward to it. Okay, so our CCG combo here. Uh, I guess we should say off the top what we're looking for when we, when we say combo. Uh, I mentioned at the top the Hyper Viper deck, the Wonder Woman, and the Brienne deck. All of those decks in second edition are ones that are uh, basically trying to win the game, go from 0 to 15 power in one turn in some way. Uh, I believe all three of them, yeah, all three of them are based in the challenges phase, which isn't always the case, but uh, that's what we're looking for when we say combo. There are some sort of loop or something where you're basically getting actually i don't even know how to determine how to how to define this chris you got a good working definition for the combos we're talking about here uh i i actually don't <laughs> <laughs> well basically uh, some sort of either infinite loop where you're playing the same cards over and over again or something that uh, allows you to extend the resources that you would normally have to the point where you can do much much more than you're normally supposed to do during your turn so for example in the hyper viper deck you're getting the corset Red Viper up to such a ridiculous strength that his game text claims you 15 power almost in and of itself in one challenge. Might have to do that over two challenges, but that's the basic idea. Uh, in Wonder Woman, you're triggering a whole bunch of uh, different effects to get a combination of power on your locations from unopposed, from uh, claim, but uh, to basically get to 15 power in almost one turn. Same with Brienne. Yeah, and that's a little different than some of the ones we'll see in the first edition and the CCG, there there are some combos still that will win you the game right off, that you'll play the, the loop out or whatever whatever it may be, and you'll get 15 power and you'll just win the game. But there are a few that are, are not quite that level that are 
combos that are infinite or could be made infinite uh, if necessary that will that will create a board state that will probably be unrecoverable for your opponent but won't actually win you the game on the spot. Fair enough. And uh, yeah, I guess the uh, combos that we have in 2nd edition don't really use loops so much as just access to way more resources than you'd expect. But uh, when we say loop, here's a good example from the CCG days. There was a Stark location that would allow you to kneel it to stand one of your defending characters and give it plus two strength. In addition to that, there was a copy of Vargo Hoat, interestingly, whose game text simply said you could kneel Vargo Hoat to stand a location. So if you put him into a challenge as the defender, not the location to stand him, you could then kneel him to stand the location, kneel the location to stand him, and every time you triggered this, he'd be getting higher and higher strength. So if with three copies of this location on the board and uh, three icons on Vargo Hoat, it was entirely possible to just have infinite strength on all your defending challenges. Yeah, that's a good point you bring up, that a lot of the second edition ones aren't like that in that they they don't quote-unquote go infinite. There's there's a finite amount to them, but they... They they all still have a similar a similar issue to the ones that we'll present today in that perhaps that the cards involved maybe should have had a trigger limit on them. Indeed, uh, good example of that. It will be the CCG combo that uh, I was going to bring up. Now this one was not a combo that would instantly win you the game, but it was a pretty solid one. This was let's see here. So there was a card called Wildling Elder. This was a very cheap Wildling character that would allow you to kill a Wildling to kneel an opponent's location, or if that location was already knelt, send that location back to their hand. So not particularly strong off the bat. Let's add to that uh, against the Nameless Other. Here's where this thing starts to get ridiculous. It uh, was an event that under certain conditions would allow you to reduce the cost of every character you played that phase by two. Okay. Now let's add in the Skirling Berserker, another Wildling character. This one said, after any Wildling leaves play, you can give an opponent's character minus one strength until the end of the phase, and that character is killed if their strength hits zero. With you so far. Now we're going to throw in one more Wildling. Let's make it two cost. Beyond that, does not matter what his game text is. And finally, the good God's own kiss. Now, we mentioned this on our Recursion podcast. This was a House Baratheon plot that uh, allowed you to play characters out of your dead pile. Now, it does not have the text that says you have to play a Baratheon character out of your dead pile, which means that one wildling that you play that's two cost, you can play it from your hand for free because of against the Nameless Other. You kill it with the Wildling Elder to kneel a location, make a guy minus one strength. Then you play that Wildling out of your dead pile, still at minus two because against the Nameless Other is still in effect kill it again with the Wilding Elder, and so on and so on, until eventually either all of their characters are dead or all of the locations are gone, or both. That seems like a pretty pretty solid board state for you. I think, I think you'd be able to win from there on, under most circumstances. Yeah, and it's worth saying that uh, I may have gotten part of, these, part of this combo incorrect. Um, I did have to sort of reconstruct it from uh, Will's... Uh, sort of broken memory of the uh, event. I think he was saying that Greg Atkinson played it to win a regional back in the day, but in his memory, it actually discarded the opponent's deck somehow. Couldn't manage to put that combo together, but uh, this this one seemed pretty solid, pretty much uh, emptying your opponent's entire board. Yeah, that's uh, that'll do the trick, and it certainly sounds like a deck that Greg would enjoy. <laughs> 
Indeed. I think uh, Will was saying that a couple more, uh, he, there were a couple more decks that uh, Greg had under his belt that were similar in nature, if not the exact same thing, but uh, that does seem to be his sort of meme. <laughs> well, along the lines of emptying an opponent's board, we get to one of my personal favorite cards. It was actually a CCG reprint uh, named Killer of the Wounded. It was a Targaryen character with two strength, two cost, and a military and power icon, and it said, response, after a character's strength is lowered, stand Killer of the Wounded. Now you'll note that, as, as is the case with many of these, it doesn't have a limit after that response. So if you could find a way to reduce a character's strength multiple times, you could make Killer of the Wounded stand multiple times. Uh, one of my favorite decks when I got into the game was a Maester's deck, which would allow you to play Threat from the North, uh, which is the new, uh, which is now Blood of the Dragon, essentially, and uh, make him a Maester and allow him to discard a character per phase by using one of the links that reduce their strength. But that wasn't infinite, uh, but there were several infinite combos that did include him because of that lack of limit on his text. Yep, absolutely. And uh, one of the cards that paired with him perfectly was Lyanna Stark. Uh, every so often in the LCG, they put out a character that actually wasn't alive during the books, uh, Lyanna being one of them. She said a couple of things, but the important part of her text was that non-unique characters get minus one strength while knelt. So... If you picture that with the Killer of the Wounded, that's already basically an infinite combo. Uh, if the Killer Wounded kneels, he immediately stands again because when he kneels, he gets minus one strength and triggers his own reaction. So the question then becomes, how do we make that broken? So this one gets a little complicated, but before I get started, I should mention this deck did win a major melee tournament in France. Uh, it was undefeated over five rounds of play, and it won most of its games on the marshalling phase of turn one. That's a, that's a pretty fast deck. Yes, which is surprising considering how many cards were necessary. So you had to have uh, Killer of the Wounded outs, you had to have Lyanna Stark outs, and you had to have Rhaegar's Harp on the Killer of the Wounded. Uh, this was a one-cost target attachment that said the attached character gains every trait in the game. So uh, that's... Normally when we say the card should have a limit on them, we mean like limit X times per phase or something like that, but um, Rhaegar's Harp saying every trait Maybe that also should have had a limit of some kind, because that lent itself to a couple of ridiculous things. In fact, we're going to come back to that uh, later on with another combo, but in any event, you've got Killer of the Wounded out with Rhaegar's Harp, you've got Lyanna Stark. So, amongst other things, the Killer of Wounded is now a Klansman. So there's a card, Son of the Mist. This was again a card that uh, came up in a couple of uh, infinite combos, and its text reads, Response, after a player plays the last card from his or her hand, Neela Klansman character to have Son of the Mist claim one power. So we have that in play as well. So the last card in your hand at this point is a card called the Hound. This was a very cheap character that uh, said when his strength is reduced, he gets returned to your hand. This is actually kind of a, a little joke that the designers made. Uh, any, any strength reducing effects are typically referred to as burn since uh, they're out of Targ. And the Hound, as you'll recall, is famously afraid of fire. So I guess they were saying, if anyone gets burned, the Hound gets scared and runs back to your hand. It was a pretty clever joke, I have to admit. Yeah, it worked pretty well. So, you play the Hound as your last card. Because it's the last card, you trigger Son of the Mist, he claims a power. And hey, now that you've had to kneel a Klansman, 
for instance, Killer of the Wounded, his strength is reduced. Yes, yeah, so you've knelt the Killer of the Wounded, its strength goes down because of Liana, it stands back up, and the Hound goes back to your hand. Now you can just play him again, trigger the same combo infinitely, but you'll notice the Hound is not yet zero cost. You're going to have to have a lot of gold to actually make this work. Except, there was a Martell location called Dorn that allowed you to kneel it to choose a trait, and until the end of the phase, all characters of that trait are minus one cost. So you, you name Ally, which works for the Hound, and now when you play the Hound for free, he allows Killer of the Wounded to trigger, giving the Son of this to power. Leanna Stark stands the Killer of the Wounded and sends Hound back to hand. Rinse and repeat, you've got 15 power in the marshalling phase. Pretty, pretty good. And it doesn't seem like a, let's see, that's a six-card combo. It's a six-card combo with, let's see, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's about 14 or 15 gold worth of um, cards. Somehow it, it, it all came together in one game's in the marshalling phase, turn one. Uh, now, the deck that I looked up also had another infinite combo that it used just to find the combo pieces for the original infinite combo. <laughs> Yes, so this included uh, a Night's Watch character, Satin. We, we have a version of him in the second edition. With the same art, I might add. With the same art, yes. And Satin allowed you to kneel a Night's Watch character to reveal the top card of each player's deck, and then choose one of three things. You could either discard both cards, keep both cards where they were, or draw both cards. Now, of course, it does bear mentioning at this point there is a draw cap in effect, so even if you could trigger this an infinite number of times, you're not drawing every card, but... When you're playing combo, you're only looking for specific cards anyway. So with the draw cap of three, if you can find a way to trigger this guy infinitely, then you can find three of your combo pieces, and hopefully the rest you'll have already found in your hand through other uh, methods of draw. So what you do is you combo him with a character called Robert Baratheon. You might know him. This version of Robert, under certain conditions, just had the ability to stand whenever he wanted to, as in any phase action. Again, without a limit. Of course. So you make him a Night's Watch character. I don't recall how this deck in particular made him a Night's Watch character, but make him a Night's Watch character, kneel him to trigger Satin's ability, and you're cycling through your entire deck until you've found your combo pieces. Then you play the rest, you cycle through that, and after you've had a marshalling phase of about 20 or 30 minutes and nobody else has had one at all, you win and everybody gets to pack up their cards. Whee! Fun interactive throne. <laughs> now it's funny that you mentioned that Robert, because he apparently was a problematic character overall. Uh, I will note that both he, both Robert, and the Killer of the Wounded eventually got the text limit three times per phase, uh, but not soon enough to stop those combos from dominating a couple events, uh, including uh, Brett Zeiler use that Robert with the Maester Chains that I mentioned earlier to great effect to win Worlds in, uh, I believe, 2010. But there was a different Robert that was used in a different infinite combo. So this Robert said, if he is the only King character in play as an any phase action, you can kneel him to play an any phase event card from your discard pile as if you just played it from your hand and shuffle it back into your deck. So what you would do is you'd use Old Nan, who, uh, instead of, like her second edition version, giving out summer and winter traits to plots, she gave any trait to any character, uh, you would make Old Nan, Robert, and uh, some character with influence on them, which was an alternate cost that we've talked about in other episodes, uh, make them all into 
the creature type, which is generally reserved for ravens, dragons, direwolves, things like that. And then use Robert's text to play an event called At Night They Howl, which says, as any face, stand all creature cards. So, of course, then you'd have him standing, Old Nan stands, the influence stands, the event goes back in your deck, and then you would eventually loop a different event called Lords of the Narrow Sea that said you would kneel three influence or a noble character, which conveniently Robert also was, to force an opponent to reveal a new plot card, and if that plot card had lower income than yours, you claimed a power for your house. So you would mill your deck, uh, and then have At Night the Hell and Lords of the Narrow Sea as the only cards left in your deck, and you would uh, just play them back and forth until you had your 15 power. Wait, how'd you get them back out of your deck once they're shuffled in? Uh, oh, you'd just be using you'd be using river plots, so you just cycle through and draw them. Oh, of course, river plots. Yes, that was another mechanic that FFG kind of struggled with initially when they came out. They were basically unplayable. Then they made one or two extra ones, and they were ridiculously overpowered. Yeah, they were uh, a plot cycle that all had the same trait: river and. Uh, there were actually two such cycles. There was rivers and cities, and both of them worked similarly in that they built on each other. Uh, but the way that the rivers worked specifically was when you flip a river card, it had some minor benefit, but then it said, in addition to that, you can trigger the when-revealed effect of another river that's already been played, that's already in your used pile. Eventually, that it would reach a critical mass of, of effects, in the card Crossing the Mummers Ford, which said, when revealed, reveal the top X cards of your deck and add them to your hand. X is the number of river plots in your used pile. So you could play that, draw a bunch of cards because you had rivers, and note that it avoided the draw cap because it cleverly used the reveal and add to your hand language. Uh, and then you would, could flip another river plot later and trigger that one again to get more cards. Of course. Yeah, I'm sure there was value in coming up with a way around the draw cap, but when you think to yourself as a designer, drawing too many cards is too powerful, let's put a cap on it. Why would you then later on say, hmm, I'd really like to draw a lot of cards here. Let's just make it so it goes around that cap. It was an interesting decision, to be sure. Uh, especially when, as you said, uh, the river plots went from kind of pedestrian at the beginning, and then they kind of built exponentially in terms of when they came out and how powerful they got. So by the end, they had to bring them back down again. Yeah, it was pretty much before Mummers Ford, no one played them after Mummers Ford. Most competitive decks, or it seemed like it anyway, tried to play them. In fact, there was another deck that um, uh, used that one, and I believe there was one that also allowed you to get a couple of gold in the plot phase when you revealed it. Yes, Under the Bridge of Dreams allowed you to... Uh, gain two gold when it was revealed, and then, and then trigger another river plot. And it itself had pretty bad stats, but you didn't care because you were putting it in your use pile and triggering it later. Yes, so those two, in combination with a, a mere three further cards, was actually the next combo that I was going to talk about. This was, again, using that Rhaegar's Harp, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, another attachment called Tyrion's Thug, which has to go on a Klansman character, which, hey, Harp helps with that and a version of Bran Stark that was actually out in the core set of the first edition. Bran had the text allowing you to kneel him in the plot phase to choose and reveal a new plot, which, very good, uh, as we all 
Very good. As we already know, especially with that new Martell plot that's coming out in second edition that uh, allows you to cycle through your plot deck a bit faster, that by itself is excellent. And uh, Bran will allow you to, for example, reveal a plot with bad income or bad claim, something like that, uh, get its one revealed text, and then change into something new before you even counted income or did any challenges. That was the intent of Bran, I believe. However, once again, there's no limit on that. So Tyrion's Thug, this is a attachment that plays on a clansman character. So you put the harp on Bran and then the thug on Bran. And it says you can discard a card from your hand to stand or kneel the attached character. So those three cards are really all you needed to, as it turns out, win the game. So you would kneel Bran, reveal a new plot card, discard a card, stand it back up. As you're going through, you reveal that uh, river plot that draws you a bunch of cards to refill your hand to allow you to keep doing this which so far doesn't actually win the game, but there was also a plot called Winter Festival with the uh, very plain text, when revealed, claim one power for your house. So essentially you would cycle through your entire plot deck 15 times on the marshalling phase that you put this combo, or sorry, on the plot phase that you put this combo together. So if you're able to do it on the first or second turn, basically your opponent would not be able to do anything beyond reveal their first plot. Another thing that I'd like to uh, point out uh, both with that combo and the rivers that we talked about, uh, is that in first edition, decking was not a loss condition, which allowed decks to completely mill themselves into the discard pile and then use recursion or what have you to play things from the discard pile without actually losing the game at any point in that combo. And that was another feature of that deck, because with the rivers, you'd be drawing a bunch of cards as you went. Uh, and, and since you said, like you said, and since you said you'd have to cycle through your plot deck about 15 times to win the game, uh, normally when that happened you would deck yourself, but you wouldn't care because it's not a loss condition. And not only that, even if you started to run out of cards to feed Bran, uh, you'd just play with Dragon and Bone Dagger, which I believe you mentioned on our previous cast about Recursion, which allows you to pay one gold to bring it back from the discard pile to your hand. Uh, and combine that with the river plot that keeps, gives you gold, and even if you deck yourself, you can still keep doing this com combination literally infinitely. Good times. Absolutely. So another feature that you may have noticed both in that combo and the one I'm about to describe is the intermingling of factions, where in first edition, instead of the loyalty system, uh, you could play any card out of house. You just had to pay two more gold for it. Uh, there were a few exceptions, cards that said house X only that could literally only be played if you were the main house. If your main house was the house mentioned on the card. But those were... Uh, much rarer than loyal cards are in second edition. And so this caused some uh, some wacky combos, like the one you described, Bran was a Stark card, Dragonbone Dagger was a Lannister card. Uh, in the one I described before it, Robert was a Baratheon card, Old Nan was a Stark card, Killer of the Wounded is a Targaryen card, Son of the Mist is a Lannister card. So you can see that a lot of these dip into several factions, including this one. Uh, which used, once again, used Dorn, as you described before, uh, and then Poisoned Well, which was a zero-cost Martell attachment that attached to a location, and after the location's effect triggers, it returns to your hand. So you'd use Dorn, make Dorn cheaper, because you'd name its own trait, uh, and then remarshal it, because it bounced to your hand, Eventually, you'd do that enough to where you'd play a different card called Coin Mint. And Coin Mint said when it comes into play, it gets four coins on it. And as an any phase action, you could kneel it and move coins from it 
to your gold pool. Uh, so you start putting the poisoned well on that instead, and so you have infinite gold eventually. And then you, at the very end of the combo, you would play a location called Balerion, which was a warship named after one of the dragons. And it said, any phase, Neo Balerion, to lower the cost of the next character you put into play by one, the character claims a power when it comes into play. And so you'd play it 15 times, use its effect, bounce it, and then you just play one character, and it would immediately gain 15 power from all the Balerian triggers, and you'd win the game. <laughs> I had no idea that uh, worked in in uh, a joust. I actually, I heard about something similar in uh, a melee game that actually required them to change the rules of the game. Really? Yes, and interestingly, this was not something that they changed through errata or in the, uh, the, the Learn to Play rulebook or anything. This was something that they actually had to change the way that melee tournaments functioned because of this. Um, this was a two-card combo. It was Balerion, the one you just mentioned, and a card called Hellholt, which says, after an opponent kneels a location, you choose and stand a location. So if Oh, the uh, Hellholt Engineer, I believe. Oh yes, the Hellholt Engineer, my, my apologies. But uh, basically, this meant if you had Valerian and a Hellholt Engineer, and someone at the table that you're playing melee at also has that combination, you can keep uh, kneeling and standing Valerian over and over again, so that one of you will be able to play a character that uh, gets 14 power immediately, and the other per person can play a character that gets 15 power, and suddenly you've ended the table in first and second place. Uh, this, of course, requires you to have built the deck in advance with some teammates, and have brought it to the tournament with this combination as the, the, the point of your deck. Uh, now, there was a meta that decided that this was a good idea one, one year at Worlds, and they brought this combo, after which FFG had to change the rules in, of the, uh, the melee tournament guidelines from you're not allowed to make decisions based on you're playing with teammates or anything like that, but basically you're not allowed to bring a deck with the idea that if someone else brings that deck, you would infinite combo and win the game. Yes, that was a, uh, a rather infamous incident in and of itself uh, that caused some disqualifications due to the uh, improper play of, of the people playing the deck, we'll say. <laughs> was that the year with the disqualifications? Because I believe that that same meta did something similar the next year or the previous year and barely skated by. Uh, I believe there was something else where they had an infinite combo where they would be able to strip all of the challenge icons off of every character in play except the ones that they controlled. Uh, yeah, I think the I think the year of the disqualifications was, as you said, Hellholt Engineer and uh, the Scourge to strip icons. I don't know if they used the Valerian combo to win the game as well in that deck, or if that was a separate deck. Ah, uh, yes, you're right. That 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 sounds familiar. So I got one or two others that uh, were in infinite combos that wouldn't necessarily win you the game in one turn, but uh, cool. would certainly get you close to it. One was a two-card combo. Uh, it was the Pyre of the False Gods and Much and More. Uh, now, Pyre of the False Gods was very similar to... Pyre of the False Gods would allow you to play events out of your discard pile, much like one of the current uh, cards that's giving us issues in combo decks in Game of Thrones. Um, but instead of placing them out of play or removing them from the game after you play them, they go to the bottom of the deck. Uh, the idea still being to try to prevent you from playing the same card out of your discard pile multiple times. But the fact that it places it on the bottom of the deck uh, made it interesting with this card much and more. If you were able to mill yourself down to three or four cards, much and more is an event that said 
Uh, you'd reveal the top four cards of each player's deck, choose one card from those revealed for each player, and add that to their hand. So if you play this on this turn, Much and More would go to the bottom of the deck. And if the card you had given yourself was another copy of Much and More, you could play Much and More again, get yourself that copy of Much and More back, and put the other Much and More on the bottom of the deck. So you are basically adding a card to your opponent's hand from their deck infinite times while your deck is staying at four cards. So in and of itself, you're giving them a ridiculous hand size, and while there is no reserve value in the first edition of LCG, there was a plot that, when revealed, would cause your opponent, or the player with the most cards in hand, which at this point will definitely be your opponent, to discard cards until they have four cards in hand. So this combination of two cards would, if you manage to move yourself down to four cards, also allow you to completely mill your opponent's deck. So if you had built your deck with this in mind, you'd still be in a position where you can do some things and they would be almost out of cards. Yeah, Pyre of the False Gods was a kind of an odd card when it came out. It was one of those cards that you looked at and you said, why does this exist? And then as the card pool grew and grew and didn't rotate and didn't shrink, uh, people started realizing that it had uh, real potential as a, as a combo card. Uh, and there were actually a couple decks that uh, through various convoluted combinations, uh, some of which we've already mentioned, Bran, River Plots, and Robert, uh, where you could actually use Pyre to recur, you've killed the wrong dwarf, which says, kneel a character and put a power on it. So you could just do that infinite times and win the game. Yep, absolutely. I think the Sons of the Mist, again, was another uh, part of this combo, if you were able to make that, uh, with a card called Priestess of the Pyre that uh, was able to, under certain conditions, stand herself whenever an event is played. So if you used her as a clansman to kneel and give some of the Mist of Power, play much and more, stand her up again, uh, that made it a bit more con uh, convoluted, but it was another infinite way of getting to 15 power. And uh, one more that doesn't get you to 15 power in one turn, but uh, has the added benefit of making your opponent start to panic as they realize that they're on a clock. Uh, this was a combo based around the Queen of Thorns, which I believe we mentioned Shadows in the previous podcast. Uh, basically, it was an out-of-play area where cards could come into play at the start of a phase. Uh, so Queen of Thorns, this version at least, gained a power every time a card came out of Shadows. Combined with this is the card Sister of Truth. This is a card that uh, it costs one to come out of Shadows, but when it does, you can return a card to Shadows. Normally the idea of that would be you return one of your opponent's cards to Shadows to get rid of it, or more likely one of your own cards so that you could use its awesome comes out of Shadows effect again. But it doesn't say return another card to Shadows, it could in fact return itself. So if you combine that with the, uh, I think it's the Hidden Chambers, this was a card that could reduce the cost of bringing something out of Shadows by one if, uh, if you've made it Winter with another effect. You can have the yep. Sister of Truth come out of Shadows at the start of every phase, react and put herself back into Shadows, and Queen of Thorns claims a power. So at the start of every phase, you're guaranteed to claim one power until they deal with Queen of Thorns. Yeah, that was a, that was a much slower uh, combo deck, but it definitely was a bit more inexorable because none of it really could be messed with unless you, as you said, dealt with the Queen of Thorns in some way, whether that was uh, Milk of the Poppy or Nightmares or something at the right time. Yeah, I kind of like that one a little bit better just be for the psychological impact. Uh, if you're playing an infinite combo that just wins in one turn, basically you'll be looking at your opponent, they'll be confused for a while, and then they'll just look really, really annoyed at you. Uh, whereas with a combo like this, it's almost as good, uh, but instead of that instead of that moment where you look at your opponent and they're like, oh, I see, you're an asshole, 
Instead, you get to see them start to panic as they realize they've only got a couple of phases left to uh, deal with this. Yeah, it definitely had a better psychological impact, as you say. I, I This is the one that I, I remember playing against because, as opposed to some of the other combos we've mentioned that were very uh, one-trick ponies and convoluted, uh, Shadows was naturally a powerful mechanic. Baratheon was a house that naturally had good Shadows cards. And so you could just put in Queen of Thorns and Sister of Truth into a regular Baratheon deck that already had other Shadows cards, still be playing a fair game, and then sometimes also get this combo online and just start a clock on them that would win the game. Absolutely. So that was pretty much all that I had. I've got one or two other effects that weren't really game-winning, but uh, were pretty stupid, or at least, um, if not infinite, a little similar to the current combo decks. So... There was a, an agenda in 1st edition called Siege of Winterfell that allowed you to claim two power whenever you won a military challenge. And there was a card out of Stark, the Northern Cavalry, that under certain conditions would not kneel to attack during a military challenge. Normally you'd think, okay, that's fairly powerful, but you can only, you know, win a military challenge once or twice a turn, maybe? But... You'd hope. You'd hope. But here comes one of those things that we mentioned as being pretty silly in our previous podcast, the epic phase, or in this case, many, many epic phases one after another. Yeah, the epic phase was another one of those mechanics that we've mentioned previously that rarely saw play when it was fair, and then when it was unfair, it would see tons of play. So uh, there were several event cards that all got played in the plot phase, that said, after the regular challenge phase, you create a quote-unquote epic phase. And uh, the cards had different conditions on them as to what type of challenge you could do. Some of them were you can do any one challenge, some of them were you had to do a specific type of challenge, uh, things like that. Uh, but the start deck in question uh, obviously loaded up on the epic phase creators that insisted on a military challenge, uh, and played, uh, along with Northern Cavalry Flank, played Sirio Pharrell, who was a Shadows card that said after you win a military in which Sirio participates, he goes back into Shadows. And so you could, and he was zero cost, so you could bring him out at the start of every one of those epic phases, much like the Northern Cavalry Flank. Yep, and with another, enough of those uh, epic phase events, this is generally speaking a win, turn, win, or go home sort of thing, where yes, you'd have other cards in the deck, but this is what you're building around. So you try to win five, six, seven military challenges in the first turn and just lock it up then. Uh, I think this survived longer in Melee than in Joust, uh, but eventually they did have to take care of it there too because it was starting to, uh, to maybe not dominate, but cause a lot of problems. Yeah, again, it was just not particularly interactive, especially in Melee where you have four potential targets that you can go after with these epic phases. And so you just have free reign on whoever you had already done the militaries against and didn't have any characters left to get your free power off of them. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's pretty much all I've got for our infinite combos. Chris, did you have anything left? No, I think we've covered all the ones that I had. If any listeners have any that we missed or uh, would like to amend ones that we mentioned or talk about their favorite infinite combos or even some non-infinite combos that... Uh, you remember from days of old, please feel free to uh, let us know in the comments. We'd love to hear about them. Yes, absolutely. These, these sort of combos are the sort of things where 
when you find out about them during a game, you're incredibly mad. But when you find out about them when you're reading on the internet, it's one of the more joyous things to think, I can't believe that they printed that. Yep, that's a pretty apt description of how, how combos feel. When when you're not the one being comboed against, uh, you kind of giggle about it. And then when you are, it's uh, less fun. All right, listeners, it's time for everyone's favorite segment. Let's crack open a good old CCG pack and see what joyous cards we find within. What do you got for us, Alex? Well, we got another pack from Five Kings Edition because that one tended to have the silliest cards, at least in the later uh, versions of the game. So let's crack it open and see what we got here. And of course, we will once again go from common to uncommon to rare and hope that that rare is uh, the silliest of them all. So let's see here. The first card we've got is the Red Oracle. This is a Baratheon card. It's a cheap one, two cost, one strength and intrigue icon. If the Red Oracle would be discarded from play, instead put it on the bottom of your deck. Then return the top card in your discard pile to your hand if able. So right off the bat we've got some recursion. Uh, yeah, that sounds like it could be a combo enabler. Yeah, you're kind of running the gamut here. You've got a card that goes to the bottom of the deck instead of leaving play. Then you've got a card coming back from out of play into your hand. It's surprising that I don't recall anything that this comboed with because it's it's really hitting all the uh, it's really hitting all the major points of uh, recursion when it's a problem. No doubt. Next, we've got a location. I think we talked about a similar one of these last time. This was a reducer that uh, reduced the cost of an in-house character by one, but by two instead if you controlled a king or queen. Did we have one of those last time, Chris? We did, yeah. I think I think we'd uh, discussed those before, that those were kind of the bread-and-butter economy of the day. Fair enough. Next, and we really are hitting all the similarities to the last pack. I think last time we had the white hatchling. This time we've got the black hatchling. Uh, this was a two-cost unique for Targaryen, a two-cost with a power icon. Uh, it has no attachments, ambush, and deadly. And if you control Drogon, attach black hatchling to him as a duplicate. Nice, nice and French vanilla, if you will. Yes, indeed. Uh, speaking of which... Man, this is not an interesting pack, unfortunately. Next, we've got the Southern Host. This is a five-cost Martell army with six strength, a military icon, and an intrigue icon, and no text. So, care to give us some Ooh. care to give us some insight into that that card design, Chris? What do you got for us? <laughs> I mean, sometimes you just need a big beater. <laughs> Next, we've got another army. This one's neutral. It's a five-coster called Mountain Bandits. It's a four-strength military icon. It's got stealth and no attachments. And interesting text, it says that Military Battle, Intrigue Gambit, and Power Struggle plot cards you reveal gain plus five initiative. That's kind of a neat trait-based manipulation for your uh, for your initiative. I like it. Interestingly, they didn't really use traits on plots back in first edition. Those three that are mentioned in this card were pretty much the only traits on plot cards. Uh, I guess it was one of the things that they really liked from first edition that uh, they decided to make a, uh, a part of second edition. It's now on every single plot card. Uh, we don't have a lot of interaction with those traits beyond uh, Summer and Winter are the major ones. There's other ones here and there, but um, it's interesting that they've, they've got that design space now where if, uh, if you build around uh, kingdom plot cards or things like that, you can get benefits out of that. Yeah, you have cards like the Stone Drum or uh, Reigns of Castamere that, that mention very specific traits on plots, uh, but I wouldn't mind seeing more uh, generic stuff like the fellow we just read. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next is an event for House Baratheon called Support of the Seven. It says there's a reaction after you win a challenge in which a Baratheon character participated. Claim one power for your house for every four strength you won the challenge by. Limit one per phase. So, interestingly, that's almost identical to the text of that uh, Corset Viper we were talking about today. 
Yeah, although they did decide to put a limit on it, so that's nice. Uh, I suppose I suppose the limit is only on the event itself. So if you were able to pull off a combo like the Viper and get your giant Baratheon character up to sixty strength or whatever, it would still serve the same function. Yeah, kind of interesting that uh, I mean this, these are obviously different design teams. This is uh, this was back in two thousand seven, so not the same team that was working on the cards in two thousand fifteen. But uh, it's interesting that they would put a limit on the event, which by its nature is normally you play it once and then it's gone. But they wouldn't put a limit on the character. That is uh, rather amusing. All right, next we got the Winterfell Hot Spring. This is a one cost Stark location. That uh, it says any phase you can kneel it to look at the top card of your deck, and you are allowed to put that card on the bottom of your deck if you would like. Once again, this uh, this just reads like another combo enabler to me. You'd be able to scry through your deck. Uh, if you've had a way to stand the location, potentially, you could uh, pick which cards you saw every turn. That seems pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's like a mini repeatable Bear in the Maiden Fair, sort of. Uh, it is non-unique, so you can play up to three copies. Uh, I don't recall there being any combos. I mean, this was the last... Uh, set in the game so there wasn't a lot of time for the meta to develop after this card came out but um, certainly the possibility there to enable combos alright moving on to the uncommons we've got a plot here called All Men Must Fight it's a 3 gold, 0 initiative 1 claim and a military battle it says in order to declare any characters to attack or defend during a military challenge a player must declare all of his or her eligible characters to that challenge oh boy that's, uh, that's a rough one a good way to uh, clear out some blockers yeah and we're, we're kind of seeing uh Nothing identical to that, since that's just across the board, but um, a lot of things that uh, manipulate who gets to participate in a challenge. So we've got the, the new Marjorie Terrell that's able to just drag someone into a, a challenge whether or not they want to. We've got, uh, from the core set, the Dornish Paramore, was it, that says they, have to, they target someone right. that has to participate in a challenge? Uh, so it's kind of that writ large uh, in this case. Yeah, it's a, that seems like quite a powerful effect, which uh, probably is why it has such mediocre stats. And I, I would imagine uh, if you had it out in the second edition and now, this would be a, a plot that a ranger deck out of Night's Watch would be interested in playing, see if they could trick somebody into attacking when they can kill everybody with uh, Watchers on the Walls. Whew, that would be bad times. <laughs> they did have an, an equivalent, I think it was called Relentless... No, that's something else. It was, uh, there was a, a Stark card that was very similar to Watcher on the Walls that uh, knelt a couple of your characters to kill all attackers during a military challenge. Um, but again, I guess you kind of have to walk right into that one for it to actually work, so uh, not too much to worry about. Yeah, as long as you know it's there, you can uh, usually play around it pretty okay. Alright, next is uh, kind of an interesting one. This is a Desolate Canyon. It's a one-cost location for Martell. that says, during a challenge, you can discard it from play to immediately end this challenge without resolving it. Stand all participating characters. The attacking player may initiate an additional challenge of the same type this phase. Huh. huh. Okay. So I guess it's used to uh, negate sort of the tricks that your opponent might have used if they had an attachment that gave somebody strength or a, a pump till the end of the challenge. <laughs> uh, those would all go away and you'd have to start over. Yeah, it's it's sort of the mulligan card. It's like, uh, I, I regret what I just did. Let, let's go back a couple of seconds and try that one again. But it's uh, in a way that your <laughs> opponent has to let you do it. Next, we've got the Giscari Arsonist. It's a three cost targ character, three strength military and intrigue icons, and it says, after the Giscari Arsonist comes into play, choose a Targaryen character without attachments. Till the end of the phase, that character gets minus four strength and is killed if its strength is zero. Alright, nice solid burn effect there. 
Yes. Uh, interestingly, it has to be a Targaryen character, so you'd think normally it would have to hit one of your own guys unless you're playing the mirror match. But uh, this was a part of a deck that I mentioned on one of the Season 1 episodes, the, the Stark Trader deck. There was a cycle of these guys that uh, did something bad to a character of their same house when they came into play. And there was, a, okay. there was a Stark deck that allowed you to basically, at the start of the game, choose one house and play its traitors and then play a whole bunch of different ways of continually psyching that character into and out of play, so you'd keep on killing all their characters, there's nothing they can do about it. That was fun. I actually, uh, that, was, that was the deck that I won Canadian Nationals with that year. Oh, nice. Is that with the, uh, the Stark sideboard agenda? Yep, exactly. I mean, it was, it was supposed to be a sideboard, but pretty much the only deck that people played with it was this trader deck. And lastly, the rare. We've got the Astapori Pits. This was a unique location for Targaryen. Two cost. It says, no attachments. Your attacking characters get plus one strength. And that's it. Uh, not well, as exciting as I was hoping for for the build-up there. but yeah. uh, <laughs> Not exactly a bomb, but I could see why you'd play the card. That seems pretty good. Yeah, just passive boost for whenever you're attacking, which you're going to be doing anyway. There's not much reason not to play that. that I mean, two cost wasn't prohibitively expensive back then, so it's pretty solid. No, uh, no real combo potentials there, but... Uh... Nice utilitarian card to finish this off for the night. Absolutely. Sometimes it's nice to have a palate cleanser like that. All right. Well, uh, thanks for uh, chatting with me tonight about some fun combos of yesterday. Uh, hopefully, we'll be uh, adding all of the combos of today to those combos of yesterday and not creating more as we go. Yes. Hopefully, those can get added to the Hall of Shame rather quickly because uh, as... As much as I appreciate the design behind them, it's not something that I'd really like to keep in the game as it is, but uh, that's a discussion for another day, so let's just call it there. All right, thanks for having me on again, Alex. Thanks for joining me. All right, guys, thanks to all of you for joining us as well. If you have any questions, comments, or if, as Chris suggested, if you have any interesting combos that you'd like to share, please do leave a comment or send us an email to insightandrenown at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have any suggestions for new episodes or anything along those lines. Thanks very much, guys. We'll see you next time.